0: four. And as we get started, before I read our text, I want to ask us a few questions, and I, I'm asking us these really as a sort of diagnostic questions for our hearts. These, these are aimed to get us thinking about what motivates us to follow Christ. Why are you a follower of Jesus? I think probably most of us in this room would call ourselves a follower of Jesus. My question for us is, why are we a follower of Jesus? What is motivating you to follow Christ today? What motivates you to follow Christ today? What motivates you to come here today? To worship corporately with the church? What motivates you day after day? To continue following Christ? Is it the expectation of others? Are there people in your life that expect you to be here today? That expect you to live a certain way? That expect you to believe a certain thing? Are you following Christ because of the expectations of others? What about convenience? Maybe you would say, it's just convenient for me to follow Christ. Maybe you grew up. Your background, your your family history is a history of following Christ, and it's all you've ever known. And so it's just the easy, convenient thing to do. Kind of related to that, maybe what motivates you to follow Christ is comfort and stability. Stability. Again, it's, it's what you know. It's what you're familiar with. These are your friends. Here's another question for us to consider. What are you looking to Jesus to do right now? What are you looking to Jesus to do in your life, in the life of your family, and in our church, in our nation, in the world? What is it you're looking and expect Jesus To do? What is it you think he should be doing? What is it that you want from him? To kind of sum up these questions, what makes you call yourself a believer in Christ? Again, I think most of us here today would identify ourselves as a believer in Christ. We are professing Christians, we are professing believers. Let me remind us that we have seen from the very beginning of our study in in the Gospel of John that belief is a central theme. We talked about this from the very beginning of, of chapter 1. John talks about belief a lot in this Gospel. In fact, it's the very purpose for which he wrote his Gospel. Let me read for us just by way of review and reminder, a few of these verses. Two of them from John chapter 1. First of all, verse 7. Speaking of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, the light being Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The reason John the Baptist came, the reason he came to introduce Christ, the reason Christ himself came, was that all might believe through Him. A few verses later in John 1, verse 12, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, that is Christ, He gave the right to become children of God. It's those that believe that become children of God. And then finally, I said that the very purpose for which John wrote his Gospel was The theme of belief. Remember John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wrote his gospel And not only did he write his gospel, but he chose to include the things he included. Of all the things that he could have included that Jesus did, he chose these things in order that you might believe in his name. You might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe and have life in his name. That's why he wrote his gospel. That's why we are studying his gospel. That's the whole thing we need to get from it. We need to believe who Jesus is. So since John's whole purpose for writing this book is that we would believe in Jesus, I think it's necessary that our belief in Jesus is rooted in the very same thing that John roots our belief in as he presents Christ, as he presents his words, his works, his teaching. What is our belief in Jesus rooted in? When we answer those questions that I asked at the beginning we evaluate our heart, our thinking? Are we answering those questions? Or is our answers to those questions rooted in the Jesus that is revealed to us in not only this Gospel, but in all of the Gospels in the, in the New Testament, in all of Scripture? Is our answer, is our motivation for following Christ, is our basis for believing in Jesus... Rooted in the things that John is presenting in this gospel. And I bring these up. I ask us these questions just to get us thinking, to prepare us for what we're going to read and study today from John chapter 4. Because this scene recorded in, in these verses that we'll read here in just a second provide for us a contrast between false belief and saving faith. We're going to see a contrast between those that have a, have a belief, but it's misguided, it's distorted, and I say it's false. That's contrasted with one who we see has a, a belief that is a saving belief, that is a belief that is real and genuine. So now let's read together. John chapter 4. I'll begin reading for us in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So let me explain the context a little bit here. Verse 43 tells us that after the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. What two days are this? If you look back to verse Forty, you remember that when he entered into the town of the Samaritans, after having that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and and she goes and tells her family what he had said, he goes to that Samaritan town and there has a very profitable two days of ministry. Many, it says, come and believe the word that he tells them. So after those two days that he spends there of... A very blessed ministry. He decides to go to Galilee. Now you remember from the beginning of chapter 4 that before he went into Samaria, he had set out for Galilee. Samaria was a stop along the way to Galilee. And so he's continuing the journey that he set out to do at the beginning of chapter 4. Stops in Samaria... Teaches, many believe, the word that he gives to them. And now he continues to go to Galilee. We're told then in verse 46 that he comes to Cana in Galilee. And hopefully if if you've been here for the last several weeks, Cana rings a bell to you. We began chapter 2 in Cana of Galilee. Jesus began his earthly ministry, as John records it, at a wedding feast in Cana. This was a place that Jesus was very familiar with. You remember that likely he was a guest at that wedding because that wedding were were members of his family or or at least close acquaintances of his family. And so he comes into Cana. He comes essentially to his hometown. This is his home region, the region of Galilee. And so what began in in chapter 2 in Cana In Galilee, he goes, you remember, to Jerusalem to the feast. He cleanses the temple in Jerusalem at the feast. He journeys back, stops in Samaria, and now he's returned to Cana. He's he's come full circle. I mentioned back in chapter 2 that many commentators refer to this as the Cana cycle. And it seems as though John is kind of summing up this three-chapter unit where he is presenting Jesus in And these very similar sort of parallel instances and interactions that he has with people. Revealing himself to be something. He's doing signs. The very end of our text, verse 54 says, what he does here is the second sign. Remember the first sign was turning the water into wine. Here's the second sign. So again, we know that Jesus did other signs during this period of time. We're told that but john is is wanting us to see that he's he's trying to communicate something through this this unit of thought in, in chapters two through four, and it's it's summed up here at the end of chapter four with Jesus returning to his hometown to Galilee, his home region and I make that point because verse forty four is this parenthetical comment that John the writer enters in here to our text. In the midst of this recollection of this story, John makes this parenthetical comment. It's going to explain something to us. And in one sense, it's perhaps intended to make things clear. It actually makes things very difficult. And the reason I say it's difficult is because this parenthetical comment in some ways confuses the matter for us. What is Jesus doing here and why does John include This parenthetical comment, verse 44, when he says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. If you're familiar with the Gospel accounts, you probably recognize that statement. The instance where Jesus actually said this is recorded in the other three Gospels. All of them record this. You can read about it in Mark 6 or Luke 4. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 13 you would turn over to Matthew 13. This is Matthew's account of when Jesus gave this proverb, you might call it, made this statement of a prophet not having honor in his own hometown. The reason I'm spending a few minutes having us turn to read this because I want us to understand the significance of this parenthetical comment that John makes as it Reveals what Christ is doing and ultimately will reveal the hearts of those that He ministers to. Matthew 13. I'll begin reading. It's actually at the end of the chapter, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? I might interject here that if you go to Luke's account in Luke 4, you'll probably recognize and remember this, this is the instance where Jesus is called to read from the scroll of Isaiah. and He reads a prophecy of the coming Messiah and he sits down and he tells them, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the instance in the synagogue described here in Matthew 13. And after he does that, they question where he gets his wisdom and his mighty works. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. To sum all that up, Jesus, his humble beginnings, the fact that these people could point to his family members. They, they knew his father and his mother and his brothers and sisters. They knew that he was really just one of them. And yet he was speaking with wisdom. He was speaking with authority. He was doing many wonderful works. Perhaps they had the idea or the attitude that the some today voice in in certain contexts. When they asked, do you think you're better than us now? Look, we both began with humble beginnings and now you've made something of yourself. Do you think you're better than me now? Maybe they Thought about Jesus, the thought that he had forgotten where he came from. You might say he got too big for his britches. He thought he was somebody significant now. No, he was just from Galilee. He was just from Nazareth. He was nobody special. Maybe it also calls the mind calls to mind the saying that we hear from time to time: familiarity breeds contempt. They viewed Jesus with contempt because. They thought they, they thought they knew who He was. They thought they, they had a grasp of who He was. In fact, they, they thought He was just one of them. They didn't think He was anybody significant. And that familiarity or, or supposed familiarity with Him just led them to dismiss everything that, that He was saying, dismiss everything that He was doing. This sort of attitude we, we, we even experience, we can see in, in our lives. You know, when you've done the same job for a while, it just becomes old. You want something new, something fresh. I mean, what parent hasn't heard that so-and-so's parents are, are way better than you are? They're, they're, they're cool. They're more fun. And that which they are familiar with, those that discipline them, aren't as fun as the parents that let them have fun. Sadly, this happens in Churches. Church members just become so familiar with one church. They get bored. They want to seek out the next new thing. The next new church. The fresh leaders. Familiarity can tend to breed contempt or dissatisfaction. Or in the case of Jesus during His earthly ministry, it can downright breed unbelief. Hardness of heart. And if you look at each of those three accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we just read from Matthew's account, when he gave that proverb that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, what, that, what did that lead him to do? It, lead, it led him to leave there. He didn't do many, many works there anymore. He left to other regions. He was not honored in the place where he was from, his hometown, his home region. So he left. And this is why I think our understanding of, of John's use of this proverb as a parenthetical note here in our, our text is really important for understanding what's going on here. Because in John's account, what does he? how does he use this proverb? Not... The way the synoptic writers did in Jesus' understanding of this leading him away from Galilee, John uses it and connects it to him going to Galilee. Notice the little word that begins verse 45. Most of your translations probably have it. I'm sure some don't. It's probably the word for. For Jesus himself had said. Verse 43, he departed for Galilee. For or because Jesus had said. John is connecting Jesus is going to Galilee with his statement that no prophet has honor in his hometown. So John's use of this proverb is totally opposite from the synoptic writers. Jesus goes to Galilee because he has no honor in his hometown. Okay, is that complicated enough? Let's make it one more step complicated. Look at verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Wait a second. I thought a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown. I thought Jesus left Galilee because they didn't believe in him. What are we to make that when he comes to Galilee, the Galileans welcome him? They saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They had gone to the feast just as many Jewish people in that day did. They go to Jerusalem for the feast. Many of these people would have been there. They, they, In fact, we know. We read. They saw it. They saw what He did. And now He comes back to Galilee. And they welcome Him when He arrives. No doubt they were excited in one sense that Here was their hometown guy who did all of those signs, who did all of those great things. The small town guy went to the big city and he showed them a thing or two. Come on, Jesus, we welcome You. You're our hero. So the people of Galilee welcome Him when He arrives. We'll hold that thought for a second. Now let's look at Another man that comes to Jesus. Verse 46. At Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This official from Capernaum, the word really, a royal official this would have been a member of, of the court of Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the, the ruler of that region during that time. Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was, was the ruler when Jesus was born. His son, Herod Antipas, was now ruling. This is the Herod that imprisoned and killed John the Baptist. This was not a fan of Jesus. This was not a fan of what John and Jesus were doing. And here likely is one of his government officials coming from Capernaum to Galilee to seek out Jesus because his son was sick. This was a desperate man. And Imagine, this is, this is a, a member of Herod's government. Okay, he would have had access to probably any sort of medical care that was available. But they had exhausted all of that care and, and still... His son was dying. His son was sick. This was a desperate father. He was so desperate, he traveled the 18 to 20 miles or so from Capernaum to Cana to ask Jesus for help. And his request is for Jesus to come down. No doubt this this man too would have heard what Jesus did. Perhaps even saw what Jesus did. Just like the Galileans. He wanted Jesus to come And do that for his son. He wanted him to come and and work a miracle for his son. And he had reached the point where apart from from Jesus doing something, his son was going to die. So he comes to Jesus in desperation, wanting his help. He wants Jesus to come to his home. Maybe lay a hand on his son and heal him. What is Jesus' response? You know, Joseph prayed a, a little while ago and recalled the kindness and gentleness of Jesus. And He certainly is those things. But I think even in the first four chapters of John that we've seen, there is a side of Jesus that is, that is direct, that is firm, that wants to correct where there is error. So, yes, he's kind and gentle, but he's not going to overlook those that mistake him for something else. He's kind and gentle and loving and meek, but he loves the truth too much to let unbelief be left undealt with and unaddressed. And so, what is his response in verse 48? The official comes to him, requests that his son be healed. Jesus says to him, and here's important, unless you, the you is plural. So he's not just speaking to this official. He answers him, but he's speaking to all those that are listening. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. What this is, is a strong indictment against these people. You see, they were gathered there just to see signs and wonders. They welcomed Jesus because He was a miracle worker. They welcomed Jesus because He could, he could do things that no one else did. And perhaps there was bragging rights. This is Jesus. This is my neighbor. And He can turn water into wine. And they just like Jesus. They like being identified with Jesus because He could do a good miracle. And Jesus calls them out for that sort of identification with Him. You won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. We'll see a, a little bit later more implications of this. But signs and wonders are not the most important aspect of our our belief and following after Christ. See, Jesus perceived the real reason that they had welcomed Him. This goes back to help us understand why John, with I think a touch of irony, includes that parenthetical comment of verse 44. Because yes, they welcomed Him, But they welcomed Him as a sort of sideshow. They didn't honor Him as the Messiah. They didn't honor Him for who He was. They welcomed Him for what they could gain from Him, for what they could see Him do. Jesus discerned that it was not the result of genuine belief in Him that they welcomed Him, but the misguided desire of theirs just to see Him work miracles. They loved the miracle-working Jesus. But they did not love Jesus, the Word, the Light, the Truth, the Living Water. So Jesus denounces their false belief. Their belief in Jesus was rooted in their desire to get something from Him. Their desire was to be served by Him rather than serve Him. Let me remind us of John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, where we read many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Apparently, a successful ministry. Many saw the signs. And believed on Him. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. The implication is He knew their hearts. He knew that many of those that were following Him, that were believing on Him, did so merely because of the signs. Because they liked what they saw. In a few weeks we'll get to John chapter 6. After He feeds the 5,000... John answer, or Jesus answers those that are following him, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. His point is, he did a sign. They didn't see the significance of the sign. They just had their stomachs filled. And so they followed him. They followed him because of what he could do for them, not because of who he was. And so Jesus... challenges the false belief of the Galileans. Yes, they welcomed Him. They welcomed Him as a a miracle worker. They did not honor Him as the Messiah, as the Lord. There's a a, a real danger in in false belief with really another way of saying unbelief. See, there is no hope for the one who does not believe Back in John 3, verse 36, we read that. The one that doesn't believe is condemned already. The one that doesn't believe in, in Christ is yet condemned and will die in his sins. So There is a danger in false belief. And so, it's not unkind. It's not un, ungentle for Jesus to call out false belief. It's, it's loving of Jesus as He seeks to help these Galileans understand who He is. And He even probes into their hearts and discerns their unbelief. He's loving them. But then look what else Jesus does. Not only does He denounce this false belief of the Galileans, but He also creates saving faith in, in the heart of this government official that comes to Him. This man's request of Jesus, verse 49, come down before my child dies. Come come to Capernaum. Heal my son. He still wants Jesus to come heal his son as we would expect any father in his situation to do. He wants Jesus to help. He is crying out for help. But Jesus doesn't. Do what the man requests him to do. What does Jesus do? Jesus responds, verse 50, Go, your son will live. Jesus responds with simply a statement of promise that the child is not going to die. The child is going to live. And as he makes this statement to this man, something amazing and miraculous takes place. This man that was so desperate for Jesus to come to his house and heal his son, when Jesus tells him, go, your son will live, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. The man believed him. I believe in this case, Jesus is, is creating in this man's heart. He's doing that, that work of, of regeneration. He's creating faith in the heart of this government official to believe his word. You see, he believed though he had not seen the sign. This man believed Jesus at just his word. And he was so convinced in his belief that he went on his way. Verse 50. Again, this man that twice we have recorded begging Christ to come and heal his son, Jesus speaks the man believes and goes his way. That's that's a a creation of faith in this man's heart. The basis of this man's faith was not seeing signs and wonders. It was the same basis for faith that the Samaritans had when they believed the word that Jesus spoke to them. This man believed the words that Jesus spoke. And his belief in Jesus Christ only grows as he travels back home. We read as he travels back home, his servants meet him. And they tell him that his son is recovering. His son is getting better. And I love this in, in verse 52 and 53, when, when the man asks when. He wants to know when, when did his fever begin to get better. And they said the seventh hour. 1 p.m., John is very specific with the time. 1 p.m. And that man knows. He remembers. That's, that's the time Jesus spoke to him. And so, yes, he believed the word that Jesus spoke. But then as he traveled home, his belief, and we're told at the end of verse 53, he himself believed. His belief was, was confirmed by seeing the sign, by seeing the miracle done. So, how do we apply this how do we How do we allow this text to to change the way we think? How does it help us understand not only who Christ is but why we're following him? What is it that is motivating us to believe in him? Let me just draw out a few. Implications from this text that hopefully will, will help us today. One, the first thing is understanding Jesus' use of signs. Jesus used signs to point to His authority. Jesus used signs to point to His authority. Maybe we might ask, is it wrong to believe in Jesus because He, he works miracles? Is it wrong for us to pray for a miracle? Is it wrong for us to expect a miracle? No. It's not wrong for us to pray for a miracle. God does miracles. But the signs that that Jesus did were never intended to be an end of themselves. But when Jesus did signs, He did them in order to point attention to Himself. And as John records these signs that Jesus did, he records them, Jesus does them, so that people would understand who He is. They would understand that He is the Messiah and that they would believe on Him. Jesus never used and doesn't use signs as an end in themselves. He demonstrates his power through miracles in order to validate his identity in order to lead people to faith in him. This response by the many galileans it 's not a surprise to us when we consider what Jesus came to do, why he came. I read verse. 12 of John 1 earlier. But but those who did receive Him, those who did believe Him, one verse before that, John 1.11 tells us that He came to His own. His own received Him not. Jesus came to this earth and was rejected by and large. He came to give His life. He didn't come and And do that which many people were looking at Him to do. He he came to accomplish His purpose. And ultimately, those that were following Him because of the signs and wonders became disillusioned with Him and, and ultimately were part of the crowd that cried out that He be crucified. Jesus' objective is to move people from viewing Him simply as a miracle worker to see Him for for who He truly is. He is the Lord of all. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our submission. So when we pray for a miracle, we do so desiring to see the glory of the Lord displayed. And our response to that miracle is going to be one of Worship and praise. Bowing our, ourselves before Him because of who He is. When we experience works of God in our life and we ought to. We ought to expect God to be working in our life. God is active in our life. Those workings of God in our life are meant to grow our trust in Him draw our hearts to worship and grow our trust in Him. Second implication. We honor Jesus not by seeking for a miracle. Although that's, as I just hopefully clarified, it's not inappropriate for us to pray for and expect miracles. But we honor Jesus not by simply seeking a miracle, but by believing and obeying His Word. One of the things Jesus revealed to this official was that Jesus' presence was not important. Jesus did not have to go 20 miles to Capernaum to heal this man's son. All Jesus had to do was speak the word and it was done. Confirmed by the servants who came and told the man when his son was healed. In this story, the power did not lie in Jesus' physical presence at the bedside of this man's son. It, it lied in the, the words that Jesus spoke. The words of Jesus are authoritative and sufficient. Many times, the desire for a sign from God might be a longing to, to see and know His presence. Perhaps you've heard, maybe you yourself have even prayed for a sign from God, knowing that, that He's present with you. This text teaches us, if nothing else, that the presence of Jesus, the physical presence of Jesus, is less important than the word that He has given us to read, to study, and to obey. Besides, we already have the presence of God indwelling us by His Spirit. But really, we don't need the presence of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. If we are a true believer in Jesus, we have the Spirit indwelling in us. We have the presence of God with us that is enabling us to obey the Word that God has given to us. So don't spend your time looking for God to speak to you through a sign. Spend your time looking into the book that He's given to us as a revelation of Himself. Find Him here in His Word. Don't look for Him in some other sign. Look for Him in the signs that He's already given. Finally, I want to point out the fact that Jesus used physical weakness to bring this man to saving faith. Hopefully this can be an encouragement to to those here that feel weak, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually. Jesus used weakness in order to bring this official and his household to faith in himself. Can you identify with that official crying out to Jesus because He had nowhere else to turn? His only hope in that moment was for Jesus to do something. Isn't that how it works many times for us? God brings us to to that point that we have nowhere else to turn. It occurred to me that the generalization, but those that, that seek and pray for signs and wonders today probably think that physical weakness is a, a sign of, of God's absence of working in our hearts and lives. Physical sickness might be evidence of a lack of faith. So you need a sign, you need God to do a wonder. yet we find over and over again, Jesus meeting people when they were weak. I read this from J.C. Ryle as he commented on this, this text. He said this, Anxiety about a son led the nobleman to Christ. If the nobleman's son had never been ill, his father might have lived and died in his sins. Health is a great blessing but sanctified disease is greater. Thousands will testify with David and the nobleman when David writes in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. We see over and over again in in the Scriptures. Think of Paul who writes that when he was weak, then he was strong. In his weakness, he saw the power of God displayed. So take heart. In the goodness of Jesus to provide healing when He chooses to do so. And look to His grace to provide comfort when He chooses to act otherwise. Even remembering that Jesus, Jesus acted in a way that this man did not request Jesus just to speak. He requested Jesus to come. Jesus did not answer this man's request in the way that that man desired Him to. But Jesus gave Him something far greater than that man could have ever hoped for. He wanted physical healing. Jesus provided saving faith. And so rejoice in our weakness, knowing that Jesus uses such things to draw us to Himself. Father, we thank You for these truths. We thank You that Your Word is authoritative for us. It is sufficient to meet our needs. Everything we need is contained in Your Word for us to understand. To grow in us a desire to to meet You there. Keep us from looking for other things, other manifestations of of You when You have given us Your Word. Give us hearts that believe the things we read. Give us faith to accept hard things. That our testimony would be that we believe in You not because we see You do signs and wonders, but we believe in You because of who you truly are. You are the Christ, you are the son of God. You are the Lord of all. So we worship you, we bow down before you, we submit ourselves to you to follow your will. For that we we pray for the spirit's power to work in us to obey and to follow you as true believers in Jesus Christ the Messiah. We pray these things in His name. Amen.